السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد uh, was it last week or the week before when we read uh, through Tafsir bin Kathir? Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Okay, so one point that I just wanted to mention, inshallah, before we, we continue with the Tafsir of Surah Fil is two weeks ago, what we did in this class is um, always kindly read from, a, from Tafsir ibn Kathir, the story that ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, mentions concerning the army of the elephants, right? And he goes through the historical account of what took place during that army of the elephants. And the point that I wanted to make, and I think that it's something which, uh, which we, we should all bear in mind, is the importance of reading those books and the barakah and the blessing of going through those classical works and reading from them at length. Even though this class isn't based, it's not a sharh, it's not an explanation of the tafsir of Ibn Kathir, and it's not just based on that one source, but because it is the most extensive, complete work of tafsir that we have translated into the English language, it's something which we should go back to, and it's something which we should be reading. And the way of the scholars of the past and the way of our teachers and so on is that they would often read those long books in groups, in small groups, maybe with just five, six, seven students. They would read those four, five, six, ten, fifteen volume works that the scholars of the past um, have authored. Those books aren't really meant to be taught. They're not really meant to be, you know, it's not like something which you do in an open class. It's not something which is which requires, you know, something which you do an explanation of because they're so long and they're so extensive and they're so comprehensive. But what they would do is that the students would read to them and they would annotate, they would commentate on them and they would explain certain things and, and do certain things and so on. And I was just in Riyadh, you know, I just got back from Riyadh and some of the scholars that we went to see then met there were doing exactly the same thing. They had five, six students and they're reading from Zadul Ma'ad of Ibn Qayyim Rahimahullah. And the students are reading and the Sheikh just stops them every so often something that they need explained, something that requires some extra emphasis, something that requires maybe some clarity, and he'll commentate a couple of minutes and then they'll carry on. Kind of like what we did um, a couple of weeks ago, where always read and I just like, you know, every so often made a couple of points here and there. There is barakah in doing that, and you find gems by reading the works of the scholars that you wouldn't find in my, in my class of tafsir or in another class. Why? Because those scholars of the past wouldn't just concentrate, for example, on tafsir, like Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, if we go through his tafsir. But Ibn Kathir is, in his own right, a great scholar of hadith. He's, an, he's one of the imams of hadith. And so often in his books, when he goes through the isnad, because the narrations that he mentions, he'll mention them with the chain of narration. And as he's mentioning those chains of narration, he will commentate on them. And he'll say that this hadith is extremely weak, or it's an authentic hadith, or he'll commentate on something about the isnad, the chain of narrators. And one example of that is something which, which I came across a few days ago in Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, just to show you how amazing it is when you go through those books, the gems that you pick up, and the things that you learn. They're not necessarily connected to tafsir, but that is the barakah and the blessing of reading those books, just as there is barakah and blessing in attending a lecture of someone who has studied those works and can explain them to you. There is barakah in having a teacher, and there's barakah in reading those classical works as well. Ibn Kathir Ta'ala in Surah Ali Imran, in the tafsir of the statement of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala when Allah Azza wa and these verses are revealed in the context of the Battle of Uhud. And Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala says, وَلَا تَحْسَبَنَّ الَّذِينَ قُتِلُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ أَمْوَاتًا 
And don't think that those who have been killed in the path of Allah are dead. Rather they are living, being provided for with their Lord. Ibn Kathir he mentions a beautiful hadith. Hadith is in the Muslim of Imam Ahmed. And he says that it is a bushra, a glad tidings for all of the Muslims, every believer. And that is that the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, that indeed the soul of the believer is in the birds that fly around the trees of Jannah. And Allah Azza wa will return those souls to their bodies on the day of judgment. What's amazing about this narration is he says that this hadith is narrated bi isnadin, sahihin, azizin, azim. This hadith is narrated with a chain of narrators, a chain of narration that is sahih, it is authentic, it is aziz, it is honorable, it is azim, it is great. He says, Three of the four Imams you will find in this chain of narrators. Right? And that's something rare. And it's something which you know, certain scholars have even dedicated to finding hadith where you find these three Imams from the four Imams of the Madhabs all in the same chain of, of narrators. Because this hadith is in the Muslim of Imam Ahmad. And one of Imam Ahmad's teachers was Al-Imam al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah. And one of Imam al-Shafi'i's teachers was Al-Imam Malik. To find a hadith with these illustrious scholars in that chain of narrators. He says this hadith was collected by Imam Ahmad in his Musnad from Al-Imam al-Shafi'i, from Al-Imam Malik, who narrated it from Al-Zuhri. And Al-Zuhri is one of the great scholars of Tabi'een, one of the students of Anas and others. A great Imam in his own right. On the authority of Abdurrahman ibn Ka'ab ibn Malik. Abdurrahman ibn Ka'ab is from the, the children of the companions, from the scholars of the Tabi'een, from his father who is the companion, Ka'ab ibn Malik al-Ansari. Ka'ab ibn Malik is a famous companion. What's he known for? Is he the one who didn't go out to fight? He's the one who missed the battle of... Which battle? It's a famous story where he gets boycotted for like over a month and... Which battle is that? Huh? Tabuk. The battle of Tabuk where there were a group of companions who didn't go. And one of them was Ka'b ibn Malik So this hadith like has some illustrious names. Right? It has like some of the great imams of of the Sunnah. The point is that this is something which you wouldn't normally like just, you know, sometimes when you, even when you go through the tafsir of Ibn Kathir, you're just reading the hadith and you skip the chain of narrators, right? If you're going through a classical work, sometimes you skip the chain of narrators that are mentioned and you go straight into the wording of the hadith. But it's like amazing when you read these books, it's not just the tafsir that you take, it's not just his, you know, the, the, the opinions of the scholars or the, or the statements of the scholars concerning tafsir, it is these other sciences that come in as well. And that's why there is barakah. And so inshallah, you know, as we go on and you know, there's more opportunities to read from those works, it's something that inshallah we will do. But even if we don't, I, you know, it's something that I would recommend that you do. Reading from Tafsir al-Jalali, Tafsir al-Sa'di, Tafsir ibn Kathir, all of these Tafsir that have been translated somewhat into the English language. And I think there's a couple of volumes of Al-Qurtubi and others as well. There is, you know, there is barakah and there is benefit in doing so. Yeah, but remember the golden chain, in your opinion. The golden chain, yeah. The golden chain of narrators refers to different people. There's not just one gold, golden chain of narrators. There are different golden chains of narrators, right? That refer to, you know, so the famous one is Malik, An-Nafi'an, Ibn Umar. But there are others as well. 
and you're like, and, and then you have snaz like this, right? Where you have the famous imams, right? People who, you know, they don't have any doubt concerning their like their trustworthiness, their precision, their hifth, their memory, their you know, their, and all of that stuff. So, and that's what, and these are like just interesting things that you pick up as you read these books. So last week we went through the first two verses of the tafsir of Surah Al-Fil which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says Alam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashab al-fil Did you not see what we did what your lord did with the army of the elephants Alam yaj'al kaydahum fi tadlil Did he not utterly confound their plans And so these two verses are speaking about how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dealt with this army that came all the way from Yemen to Mecca with the sole purpose and express wish of destroying the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Kaaba. And they came ready with their army and with their elephants. And we mentioned last week the difference of opinion amongst the scholars concerning was there just one elephant or more elephants? Was there an army of elephants or was it just a single one? Either way, they came ready to destroy the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And no one stood in their path. No one was able to stop them. And when they came to Mecca, they found no army waiting to resist them. No one there to stop them from coming and attacking the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Quraysh, and this is an interesting point, the Quraysh, despite their shirk, despite their polytheism, despite their idol worship, despite everything else, they had at their core, at times, a sincere belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They would turn to Allah azza wa alone and sincerely like in this case, when Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, says, as for me, I'm the Lord of the camels. The Kaaba has its own Lord, right? Its Lord will protect it. And that is an iman, a, a, a belief that they had, that especially in times of, 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 of dire need and stress and difficulty, they would turn to Allah alone and they would forsake all of their other idols. So you don't find in the narration that they went to those idols and they worshipped them or they... No. And even that narration that Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, mentions, that some of them they took... Remember we mentioned they had camels, muqallada that they had marked out, they had earmarked them for sacrifice to the, uh, in the Kaaba for the poor of the Haram, in the hopes that if, they, if the army came and they attacked some of those camels that had been marked out to be sacrificed for Allah, that they would be punished because of the harm that they did to something which has been marked to sacrifice for Allah. And they didn't mention sacrifice for their idols and their other gods that they worship besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah azza wa jal mentions this in the Quran in a number of verses. If they were to embark upon the ship, they were to go out on sea in the ocean, they would turn to Allah alone. And Allah says, with ikhlas, with sincerity, making the religion only purely sincerely for him. They would forget their gods and they would forget their idols. And Allah calls it ikhlas. It is a type of ikhlas that even they had, despite their shirk and ever, they had times when they would only turn to Allah Azza wa And Allah says, najahum. And then when he would save them, showing that even if a non-Muslim, a disbeliever, an idolater, if they have those moments of pure ikhlas and sincerity and turning to Allah alone, Allah Azza wa may well respond to them. And Allah does respond at times to them and accepts their dua, and accepts their request, and fulfills their needs. And that's for people who the vast majority of their time don't worship Allah alone, and they worship other than Allah, and they commit shirk, major shirk, showing how Allah Azza wa Jal had the power of sincerity, and the power of tawheed, that even when it just comes as a very small light, a very small thing that happens once in a while, 
How often are they going to be on the ocean? How often are they going to be traveling by sea? But even when it happens on that very odd occasion, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses that and Allah Azza wa answers the dua. Allah says, and when he would save them, when he would save them and take them back to land, they would turn back to their shirk. But those moments in which they turn to Allah and Allah alone, Allah responds. And so what about those people who spend their time only worshipping Allah? Their life is dedicated to the tawheed. Their whole life is based on ikhlas and sincerity in worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, making their religion and their worship purely for him subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so one of the greatest as Allah is mentioning in this verse, one of the greatest means of having your dua accepted is by having sincerity, by having tawheed, by turning to Allah alone, above and beyond everyone and anything else. It is more powerful than everything else, turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. If Allah azza wa can answer the dua of the mushrikeen, that one time that they have ikhlas, then what about the people who their life and their worship is based upon that concept of ikhlas and sincerity for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah Azza wa Jal is telling us then in this surah, Did he not utterly confound their plans? How they came wanting one thing and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had something else in store for them. And often Allah Azza wa Jal allows people to reach a certain level of oppression before he punishes them. It was very possible as we mentioned in the narration that Ibn Kathir rahimahullah mentions in his tafsir, very possible that as soon as the army left Yemen, they met that first group of people that opposed them. They could have been stopped there. Allah could have willed for them to be defeated in Yemen, on the outskirts of Yemen, as they entered into the Jazeera in that land of Al-Khath'am, when they came to that tribe, which is today in the southern part of Saudi Arabia, that area, that region, could have been stopped there, could have been stopped towards Taif, could have been stopped before they entered towards Mecca, could have been stopped anywhere along that way. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't allow for them to be stopped. Allah Azza wa didn't decree that they should be stopped until they came on the very outskirts of the Haram. They're literally on the doorstep of the Kaaba, on the doorstep of the Haram of Allah, the boundary that Allah Azza wa has placed around the Kaaba. That is where Allah Azza wa chooses to stop them. And that is because Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala allows the people of oppression, people of transgression, the people who do evil, he allows them to reach a certain level before he punishes them Subhanahu wa Ta'ala. Otherwise, it's possible that Allah could have destroyed Pharaoh at the beginning of his life. When he first comes and he starts to oppress Bani Israel, Allah could have destroyed them. Allah could have destroyed Ad and Thamud and the people of Lut and the people of Shu'ib and all of those nations. Allah could have destroyed them at the beginning, the people of Nuh But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows for them to reach a certain level and that is when the punishment of Allah descends upon them. Likewise, the army of the elephants, they come, they come, they get closer, they get closer, they increase in arrogance, they increase in pride, they increase in haughtiness, they increase in oppression, and they come to a place where they think that there is nothing to stop them now. No army between them. They've come across the whole of the Arabian desert. There's nothing left there at the doorstep. The people of Mecca have fled into the mountains. There is no one between them and the destruction of the Kaaba. And that is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses to destroy them, to show his power, to show his izzah, his might, to show subhanahu wa ta'ala how he protects his awliya and those things that belong to him, jalla fi ula. And that is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in verse number three. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now describes in the rest of this surah how he destroyed them. 
And Allah Azza wa often does this in the Quran. It is a foundation or a methodology of the Quran that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't just tell us that he destroyed a group of people, but he often tells us the manner in which they were destroyed, the manner of their destruction. Just as on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, Allah Azza wa doesn't just tell us that there will be people that will go into hellfire, that they will be entered into Jahannam, but he tells us the manner and the description of their punishment as well. Because it is ablaq, it is more eloquent, it is more profound, it has a greater impact and it leaves a greater effect on me and you when we don't just hear that a group of people died, that they were destroyed, that they were punished. Those are abstract terms, right? We don't, that doesn't really mean anything. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the manner in which they will be punished or the manner in which those past nations were destroyed. So Allah tells us in vivid detail the destruction of the people of Nuh and how the rain descended. Right? And if you go to Surah Al-Qamr, Allah describes it in very beautiful, eloquent terms. That Allah caused the doors of the heavens, right? the gates of the heavens to open and rain fell forth from them. And that gives you an image, right? That it's as if the whole sky has been opened for the rain. And we allowed from the earth springs to gush forth, as if all of the earth now is a spring. And the two bodies of water met at a predetermined limit. The rain of the heavens, the water of the earth, both of them meet until Allah decrees that that is the level that the flood will reach. And Allah describes the manner in which they're destroyed. He describes the manner of Pharaoh and his destruction and Ad and Thamud and all of those nations. It is a methodology of the Quran. And that's why one of the most extensive topics that are mentioned in the Quran is the punishment of the people of Jahannam. And obviously the reward of the people of Jannah. It is mentioned in vivid detail. We know the type of food that they will eat, the type of drink that they will have, the type of uh, surrounding of their destruction and their punishment. <clears throat> we have different names for different types of destruction that will take place within that. And we will see this, inshallah, when we go on to the next surah, Surah Al-Humaza, that Allah Azza wa mentions that, right? Narullahil Muqada, Allati Tattali'u Ala Al-Af'ida, Innaha Alayhim Mu'sada Fi Amadim Mumaddada. Those are descriptions of punishment that will take place in Jahannam, right, in the fire of hell. Allah Azza wa describes it in vivid detail, and that's why you will find that there are scholars who just gathered from the Quran those verses of punishment for the people of the fire. Just the verses of punishment that Allah Azza wa mentions, and they are extensive and many. And each one of them, even though there is a certain amount of repetition in those verses, meaning that the concepts are repeated, but Allah Azza wa often adds something or adds an extra word or an extra description or he gives some extra information concerning something that those people will have. And we see that explanation and that detail because it is important in the effect and the impact that it has upon us when we think about those things. So Allah describes here the punishment of these people. And Allah describes the punishment of people in the Quran. It kind of falls into two broad categories. The first of them is that that punishment is great in terms of what took place, right? A flood, a people that are swallowed by the earth, right? A people that are, you know, they have a sayha, a scream, a loud scream, but because of it, they destroy it. Or the people of Lord that the earth is taken up and turned around and put down again, right? Those are great impactful destructions. And then you have the second type, like we have in Surah Al-Fil, where the punishment is great, but its means is something which relatively seems, you know, uh, 
innocuous, right? It doesn't really seem like it's something very big. Stones that fall, you know, small pebbles that fall from the sky. Or like the Prophet told us وسلم, concerning the people of Ya'juj and Ma'juj, that they will be destroyed by a type of insect that will come and it will eat their necks. Seems like something like an insect, a worm, a slug, isn't something that you really are fearful of. A pebble by itself is nothing. Pebble or a stone isn't by itself anything big. But Allah Azza wa Jal shows in the Quran that He can use even the smallest, most you know, harmless looking thing, Allah Azza wa Jal can turn it into destruction, can turn it into punishment, can turn it into a means of adab wal billah. And that is what Allah Azza wa Jal mentions here. In verse number three, he sent ranks of birds against them. What is, um, what is the translation that you guys have? I have, he sent ranks of birds against them. That's, I think, the translation of Abdul Halim. Whose translation is that? You can't give me a name. You can't just say that's the one I got here. Yeah? I want to know. Huh? Ibn Kathir? No, but I want like from the, the translations that we have. Sorry, Muhsin Khan says what? What does he say? He sent against them birds in flocks. Okay, so we have ranks of birds. We have birds in flocks. You have it here? Yeah, get Yusuf Ali, get Pictol, get Mufti Zakir Uthmani. Okay, so verse number three. Muhsin Khan says, and he sent against them birds in flocks. Pictol says, and send against them swarms of flying creatures. Sahih International, and he sent against them birds in flocks. Yusuf Ali, and he sent against them flights of birds. Mufti Taqi Uthmani, and he sent upon them flying birds in flocks. And Professor Abdul Halim, he sent ranks of birds against them. Similar, but also, you know, with slight nuances in terms of the translation. And why is that? Because we have two terms here that there is a slight, you know, like um, difference in terms of the statements of the scholars concerning what they mean. The first is tayr, right? Tayr means bird. What type of bird? What exactly is it, this bird? And the second is ababil, right? That word that comes at the end of the verse, which is ababil. Allah Azza wa Jal sent upon them, right? This is their destruction. This is their means of punishment. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would send upon them these birds. What are these birds and what type of birds are they? This is where the scholars of, of, of tafsir differ and they differ only because some of them try to describe the type of bird or try to give it a, a description that we would understand. Otherwise the Quran in itself keeps it very vague and the general ruling is or the general principle is that when the Quran keeps something generic, it remains as being generic. If Allah didn't specify and there is no authentic narration that specifies that general term, then it is something which is extremely difficult for us to pinpoint, right? Like for example, when Allah Azza wa Jal in Surah Al-Kahf mentions that the people of the cave had a dog, right? What, what breed of dog was it? What color was it? What type? That's something which the Quran doesn't specify. There's no authentic hadith that specifies it, even though there are countless narrations in the books of Tafsir specifying the breed of the dog, and the name of the dog, and the color of the dog, and all of those. But those are all statements that aren't based upon any authentic narration. And so the, the, the safest path to take is to say that Allah, Allah knows best. We don't know the breed, 
We don't know the name, we don't know the dog. And often Allah Azza wa does this as a methodology in the Quran because those details are not important. Moreover, those details sometimes when defined become a source of distraction. Yeah, okay, like maybe like a bit like the Baqarah, like the story of the cows from the Baqarah. But the point is that Allah Azza wa doesn't go into specifics because by going into specifics, it can often lead to destruction. So when you become busy with all oh, the names of the dogs and the type of the dog and the breed of the dog and the color of the dog, none of that in, in, information, none of that detail is important. Doesn't affect the story, doesn't affect the lessons, doesn't affect the principles that we learn, doesn't affect what Allah is the message that he's trying to give to us, doesn't matter what the dog is. The point is that it was a dog. And so Allah often leaves them general in terms and you find that the Sunnah doesn't really expand. The Prophet means tafsir of the Quran, the hadith that we have that speak about tafsir rarely go into those types of details. Only rarely does the Prophet go into a type of detail concerning like a name or only to explain something. Like for example, in the story of Musa in Surah Al-Kahf, the Prophet told us in the authentic hadith that the man that he meets is Khadir. Salam, right? And he tells us the reason why he's called Khadir and because he sat on a patch of, of, of land and it turned green and the hadith is in Bukhari. And so therefore now you have an additional information, something that's mentioned that is additional and that we have that is authentically narrated. But generally speaking otherwise, the, gen, the general um, principle of the Quran is that what Allah Azza wa makes and refers to in generic terms is kept generic if there is nothing authentic that is reported that has specified it. So the tayyir, it is reported that Aisha radiallahu anha said that it, it was most resembling a swallow. A swallow. I think everyone knows what a swallow is. And the other opinion or the other um, name that you will find amongst some of the scholars is what is reported by Ibn Abbas and Mujahid and Ata that they said that it refers to uh, a vulture. Right? That the bird was like a vulture. Either way, and obviously there's a big difference right, between a swallow in between a vulture. And some of them said that it was from the birds of the ocean, meaning the birds that spend most of the times out, most of the time out on sea. Another said it was a bird that Allah Azza wa sent from the heavens, meaning that it wasn't something which the people were familiar with, it wasn't something which they knew. All of those are opinions and we'll go through some of them in, in more detail now. But the point is that none of that is authentically reported from the Sunnah of the Prophet There's no authentic hadith. And so the, the safest opinion is just to say that it was a bird that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent. And it's possible that when the companions, especially when they speak about that, that they give a, a, a type of bird, it is to show that it was a bird, right? Just to make it easier for people to understand the concept in a way that, that is familiar to them. But it doesn't mean that they're specifying the actual type of bird and Allah knows best. Ibn Hisham <coughs> said, Al-Ababil al-Jama'at. The word ababil refers to groups right, or flocks. Right? And that's why it is the most common. Um, and that's like a linguistic interpretation that the Arabs use it to describe. And tayr is, as we know, tayr in the Arabic language is the singular, not the plural. Tayur is the plural. Tayr is the singular form. Right? And that's because when the Quran does this, tayran, it is to generalize. It is to show that they were a great quantity. It is encompassing in the Arabic language. So even though they were flocks and flocks of birds, they all acted as if they were one, meaning that they had the same mission and they did the same thing. 
And all of them came with the exact same thing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, meaning that Allah azza wa decreed that they would punish this army of elephants. Right? So they were as if they were one. Even though the word Ababil, Ibn Hisham says, even if it is described as one, meaning it is used as an adjective, a description of one bird, Tayran, it shows that they came in flocks. Right? And that's how they use it in the Arabic language. So he said that it means that they came in flocks. And this is also reported on Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu an, and Abu Salama ibn Abdul Rahman. Abu Salama is the son of the companion Abdul Rahman ibn Auf radiyallahu an, and he passed away. Uh, Abdul Rahman ibn Auf, the companion, passed away whilst Abu Salama was still a young uh, boy. But he narrated some hadith from his father, and he met other companions like Aisha and, and Usama ibn Zayd and others, and he narrates from them Abu Hurairan and so on. The point is that this these Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu an, Abu Salama, the son of Abdul Rahman ibn Auf, they said Ababil means firaq, meaning jama'at, groups. Right? They came as groups. They came in, in flocks of birds. Ibn Abbas and al-Dahaq, rahimahumullah, they said Ababil, yatba'u ba'duha ba'da. Ababil means that they came in groups one after the other, one following the other. Right? So they came in groups, one following the other. Ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhum has another statement that is attributed to him, which is similar, فَوْجًا بَعْدَ فَوْج Wave upon wave, he says. They came as birds, wave upon wave, and they came from the sea. They came from the direction of the sea. Right? And obviously, Mecca isn't too far from Jeddah, those places that are on the coast. They came from the direction of the sea. Al-Hasl al-Basri, rahimahullah ta'ala, Qatada, rahimahullah, they said, Al-Ababil al-Kathira, Many in number. Al-Ababil refers to that they were many in number. Mujahid, rahimahullah, said Ababil means that they were dispersed and they were following one another. They were following each other. Ibn Zayd said Al-Ababil means that they were different. Some came from this direction and some came from that direction and they came from different places to place that punishment upon the army of the elephants. So we have like differences right here in terms of some of the expressions that the, that the scholars of tafsir are giving. Some of them are saying they're flocks and they're coming together wave upon wave and others are saying that they are dispersed, right? That they are separated, that they are coming from this side and from that side. And as we said, I think last year sometime when we were going through like some of the, the, the principles and methodologies of the tafsir, we said that one of the methodologies or one of the principles of tafsir is that really do you find a real difference of opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir, amongst the salaf. I don't mean like after that, like in our times and so on, but if you go back to the early generations, the time of the companions, their students and so on, those early generations of Muslims, in the tafsir of the Qur'an, it is rare to find a real difference of opinion. But often what they did was that their statements, even though they are different in terms of the words that they use, the expressions that they use, the way that they describe something, in meaning, they are the same. In meaning, they are the same, as opposed to fiqh. Whereas in fiqh, you have actual differences of opinion, even amongst the companions and the students of the companions, real differences of view and opinion in terms of fiqh. In tafsir, it is actually very different. It is very few in tafsir that you will find major differences of opinion amongst the early scholars of tafsir. 
Yes, after that it may happen and you know, like people came with different views and opinions and so on. But amongst that generation, that's why if you go back to the classical works of tafsir or the works that rely on classical tafsir, like Ibn Kathir, like At-Tabari, like others, you will find that they rarely have that difference of opinion. And when they do, those scholars will commentate. At-Tabari will commentate. Ibn Kathir will commentate. They'll say that that seems to be like you know, a, a very weird opinion or something. It's not something which the mass, vast majority of the scholars of tafsir agreed upon. To show that it was only one or two that went out of the body of what the majority said. So you don't find the difference. So this is the same here. There's actually not a difference of opinion. But when you read those classical works and you understand what they meant by that, the different ways that those scholars and those companions and others are describing the same term, you understand that they're complementing one another. So when some of them say that they came in droves and flocks and they came together, and others say that they came separated from here and from here, they're referring to the same thing, but just from different angles. What they're saying is that those birds came in flocks at a time. I mean, they're not all of the birds came together at once. They came in flocks, right? A group of a few hundred here, a few hundred there, a few hundred there. So they're separated in that sense, but within each flock, they are together. And that's how you join between those different statements of the scholars. So they came from different directions in flocks. And that's why Ibn Abbas in his tafsir, and they're very specific, the companions and others in the words that they choose, they're very accurate and precise in what they say. He says, he describes them as wave upon wave. Right? Wave upon wave, meaning they didn't just come all together at once, they came together, but wave after wave after wave. Right? And that's how Allah Azza wa Jal, uh, also describes, for example, in the Quran, the emergence of Ya'juj and Ma'juj. وَتَرَقْنَا بَعْضَهُمْ يَوْمَئِذِي يَمُوجُ فِي بَعْضِ And we will see them on that day coming out wave upon wave. Right? And the word mawj in the, in the Arabic language refers to a wave. Right? And that's why even in the sea, right, the waves of the sea are called mawj, amwaj. So this is why you have that slight difference of, of, um, of expression. But in reality it is the same thing. Ibn Jarir rahimahullah in his tafsir he mentions that some of the scholars amongst the companions in the tabi'een he said that Ababil refers to them coming like camels right? like, like is it, what do you call a group of camels? Herd. A herd of camels? Okay, like herds of camels right? that's how we describe them, it means that they come together and they will race together Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma it is also said that he said, described the bird as being green in color and he said that they had, uh, they had beaks, meaning sharp beaks, like the beaks of prey birds. And they had claws, like the claws of, of prey animals. And Ikrimah rahimahullah ta'ala said something similar. He said that they were green birds that came from the direction of the sea and the ocean. And their beaks were like the beaks of prey animals. A siba is predators, right? Like tigers and lions. And this is the way that they came. Ikrimah. Rahimahullah Ta'ala said, and I, mentioned, I just mentioned the, the opinion of Ikrima or the statement of Ikrima, Al-A'mash, Rahimahullah and Abu Sufyan narrated from Ubaid ibn Umair. Right, Ubaid ibn Umair is one of those people that was born in the time of the Prophet but I think he accepted Islam afterwards. And he doesn't narrate anything from the, from the Prophet but he narrates from Umar and Ali and Aisha and others. Ubaid ibn Umair and A'mash, Rahimahullah, they said that they were dark colored these birds or maybe they were black birds that came from the direction of the ocean each one carried 
three pebbles, one in its beak and two in each claw. Right? Each one carried one in its beak and two in each claw. And again, these are, you know, I don't know of any authentic hadith regarding this, but these are the statements of the scholar Sa'id ibn Jubayr, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous scholar amongst the tabi'een. He said something similar. He said that they were green birds and they had beaks like the beaks of eagles. They had beaks like the beaks of eagles. And Ibn Abbas and Mujahid and Atta, as we said before, described it as being similar, these birds too, uh, being as similar to vultures. Al-Kalbi said, with each bird, there came three stones, two in its claws and one in its beak. Two in its claws and once in its beaks. Al-Imam al-Shawkani, rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentioned all of these opinions and he said that we don't know which bird it is, but the opinions and the statements that say that it was a bird, some of them said it is a bird that came from the heavens, others described it to be a certain specific type of bird, like a vulture or a swallow or so on, and others said it is a bird, right? and they left it as being general. And likewise, Ababil, we have those different opinions, some of them said that it refers to many in number, others said that it refers to waves, others said that it refers to different groups that came, others referred to it as being wave upon wave, others refer to it being of different color, other, and so on and so forth. Right? And those all opinions that we mentioned actually complement each other and they don't differ from one another. Any questions regarding that? Okay, there's a question online. Say, Sayyida asks, is it one of the virtues of reciting Surah Feel helps in curing black magic? Allahu alam. I don't know. It's the first time I've come across that. The ones that are like known are like Surah Fatiha, Ayat Al-Kursi, Surah Ikhlas, Falaq Nas. These are the surahs that are like well known for that. But I, Surah Feel, I don't know. Allahu alam. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us then this is the manner of their punishment. And Allah Azza wa is going to detail. So he describes to us the manner of their punishment in detail. The first part of that detail is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent upon them birds in waves, in groups, meaning that there were a great many in, in number. Just as it said, by the way, as we mentioned in the narration of Ibn Kathir, that the army of Abraha was also great in number. Right? And that in some of the narrations it said that Abraha was told, you don't need to take such a big army to defeat the Quraysh. The Quraysh doesn't have a standard army, right? It's not like many other countries and, and states that they have a, a, an official army or an actual army. They're just people, right? They're just gone. You don't need to take thousands of people to defeat the Quraysh. But he said, no, I want to show them the power that I have. Right? I want to show, it's a show of force, a show of might, a show for all of the Arabs of the peninsula that you don't mess with Abrahan, you don't mess with his people. And so he came with all of that number. So just as he came with a great army, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent upon them flocks upon flocks of birds. In verse number four, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, Tarmihim bihijaratim min sijil, pelting them with pallets of hard baked clay. Can we go back to the um, Quran? Thank you. What's going on there? So Allah Azza wa says, Tarmihim bihijaratim min sijil. Muhsin Khan says, striking them with stones of sijil. Well, I assume there's like parentheses there that I don't have here because normally when Muhsin Khan uses the Arabic word, he has brackets and then there's like three lines of explanation. But I don't have that anyway, unless someone else has it. No? Anyway, khalas. Uh, Abdul Halim says, pelting them with pellets of hard baked clay. Mufti Taqi Uthmani throwing upon them stones of baked clay. 
Yusuf Ali striking them with stones of baked clay, Sahih International striking them with stones of hard clay, and Pictorial which pelted them with stones of baked clay. Right? Very similar in terms of, of, um, of the translation there. Tarmihim, the word Rama means to throw. Right? And that's why when you go from Hajj and you go to the, uh, to the, the pillars in Mina, is called, is it called? When you stone in the days of Hajj, it's called Rami. Right? Rami, right? that's what it's called. Tarmihim comes from the same word of Rama. Rama Yarmi, to throw, to pelt, to stone, to strike. Right? All of them are similar in terms of, depending on the context, you would use um, the, the correct translation. Tarmihim, that they were pelted, they were struck with. Hijara, a stone. Min Sijil. What is this stone of Sijil? Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhu said, Hijara min Sijil, teenun fi Hijara. It is a stone, it is clay, or a stone that is covered in clay, or clay that is within the stone. Meaning that it, and we'll come on to this, and that's why you, the most common translation is that it is a baked type of clay. It is a stone of clay that has been baked, meaning hard baked, and that's where it comes from. Uh, others said a sijil, and this is like a linguistic uh, tafsir. Abu Ubaidah, who was one of the scholars from the first century of Nahu and Arabic language and so on, he said that sijil in the Arabic language means a shadid, hard, strong. Right? So these aren't just like, these are stones that are extremely strong. Others, like Ibn Zayd, and Ibn Zayd, uh, this Ibn Zayd that is being referred to in the books of Tafsir, he is Abdul Rahman Ibn Zayd Ibn Aslam, who died in 182 and is from the third generation of Muslims. Ibn Zayd said, Sijil is the name, is the name of the lower heaven. Sijil is the name of Sama'ud Dunya, the lower heaven. And it's called Sijil because that is where the stones came from. It came from the lower heaven and that's why it is called Sijil. This is the opinion of Ibn Zayd. And Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, and this is, as I said before, Imam Al-Tabari comments right, on the opinions of the scholars of Tafsir. If there is something that he disagrees with or something that he thinks is incorrect or something, he doesn't just stay quiet. He will commentate and he will correct and he will explain. Imam Al-Tabari said concerning this opinion that, that Sijil is the name of the lowest heaven. He said that this is an opinion of Ibn Zayd. I don't know it. I don't know that it is authentic from any narration nor even from any logic, nor even from any basis of language. And that's why, because, and that's because the names of something is either taken from an authentic narration, or it's something which the people, you know, use their intellect and they come up with a name for something, they, they will agree, or it's taken and extracted from the language itself, or from the, the, the Araf and, the, and the, um, the customs of the people, right, and the way that they are. They're used to doing something and calling something. Give it a name and it becomes famous. He said none of this applies to this opinion of Ibn Zayl. We don't have an authentic narration saying that Sijil is the name of the lower heaven. It's not something which you can just make up, you know, why intellectually, where do you get that from? And nor is it something which has a basis in the Arabic language. And so obviously he's commenting to saying that this is an opinion which is extremely weak. Right? Others said, and this is said that it is from Ikrimah, he said that it is the name of a of an ocean, and it is where the stones came from. Right? It is the name of the ocean that the stones came from, and again, that is something which Allah Alam 
predators again like where do you get that from Azujaj, who is also one of the scholars of the Arabic language he said a sigil it came from or there were stones that had the names of those people on them and that is what a sigil is referring to it is something which had the names of those people upon them and that's what they were punished with and he said also in a sihah which is a book of Arabic grammar and language and so on he said it is a stone from clay that was baked in the fire of hell and upon it it had the names of those people in the army and that's what was used to to uh, punish them Abdurrahman ibn Abza rahimahullah ta'ala was from the tabi'in from the students of the companions and he lived during the time of Umar and, and so on and there's a famous narration when Umar radiallahu an was the Khalifa that he met with a group of his governors that had come to see him or oh, he met with sorry one person and he uh, uh, or a group of I think it was a group of governors and he asked them who did you leave behind right in terms of who did you deputize now that you're not in those places and he asked the one who came from Mecca who did you leave behind in Mecca who did you deputize in your place when you came to see me? And he said, I left this man, Ibn Abza, Abdurrahman Ibn Abza. And Umar radiallahu asked him, and who is this Ibn Abza? I've never heard of him. Who is he? He said, oh, Umar, he's a man who knows al-fara'id, the laws of inheritance. And he's a person who knows the book of Allah. He's a qari al-Quran. Right? He's someone who knows the book of Allah azza wa jalla. And generally in the works of the Salaf, or in the, in the classical uh, text that we have the word qari is not the way that we understand today qari qari today means a reciter in classical islam or in classical text the qari is the one who understands who reads yes but that was a given right reading was a given who understands the book of allah meaning they have the tafsir of the quran right and only when they have the tafsir are they called qari just as the term hafil in olden days wasn't used for someone who memorized the quran he would say, Yahfad Kitab, he memorizes, but they wouldn't call him Hafil. What is Hafil? Hafil is someone who's memorized thousands of hadith. Right? Only when you've memorized thousands of hadith, like Hafil ibn Hajar, Al Hafil al Mizzi, Al Hafil al Dhahabi. Those people are called Hafil because they have memorized the Quran was a given. Right? It wasn't even something that you'd it's something which is so basic that you don't even it doesn't deserve a title, it's just something which everyone does. Al-Hafid is the one who's memorized thousands of narrations of hadith on top, right? And according to that, none of us would be Hafid, right? And according to the Qari, none of us would be Qari because obviously, you know, and it just shows how over time, you know, when standards drop and so on, and then we use terms that were known for something. And that's why when you read these, the, the, the biographies of these scholars and you come across a narration like this, oh, he was a Qari, and you're like, oh, okay. You know, he just like he just recite the Quran. It's not what he means. He means that he understood the Quran. He was a scholar of tafsir. So anyway, he said to Umar, he's someone who knows the laws of inheritance, and he's someone who is a person of the Quran. He knows the Quran. And Umar said, then in that case, and he's from the Mawali. He said, Mawali is meaning he's from the freed slaves, meaning he's not an Arab. And in one narration, um, Umar said to him, "How can you leave as the governor of Mecca?" Someone who's not from Quraysh, right? Someone who's not from the Arabs. He's a non-Arab, a free slave, and you leave him as the governor of Mecca. And the Quraysh are known, obviously, for their, you know, their status and, and what have you. He says to him that he's a person who knows Faraid. He knows the laws of inheritance. And he's a person who knows the book of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So then Umar radiallahu anh said, then in that case, let it be. 
For I heard the Prophet say, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that indeed Allah Azza wa will raise people with this book and He will cause others to be lowered through it. Right? So the Quran, the companions, when they heard people, were people of the Quran, people who were Qurra of the Quran, meaning they understood the Quran, they had the tafsir of the Quran, they understood the Quran, the companions would respect those people and they would honor them. And they would know that they are worthy of positions of responsibility and so on, irrespective of their background, irrespective of their race and their color and everything else, because of the knowledge that they had acquired. Right? And that's why you have those famous stories of the likes of Ata, rahimahullah ta'ala. Right? Ata is the famous scholar of his time from the students of Ibn Abbas. But Ata is a man who is short in stature, and he is dark skinned, and he's a free slave, and he's blind. And he said that he had disabilities, meaning that you know everything you can kind of think of that would like you know cause a person to kind of be overlooked and put aside and not really no one pays attention. Ata had all of that stuff. If you read his biography and his description, blind and weak and dark skin color and everything else, a free slave and everything. But despite all of that, he was from the greatest scholars of his time, from the greatest scholars and ulama of Mecca. It is said that one of the Khalifas of the Abbasids, one of the Umayyads came to Mecca to perform Hajj, and the Umayyad, the capital was in Damascus. He came to Mecca to perform Hajj, and he had with him his sons. And he came to Mecca, and Mecca in this time, in that time, this, you know, we're still talking about relatively early on, this is the students of the companions are alive, so it's very early on. You have hundreds of scholars in Mecca, hundreds of them gathered. He said to someone, who is the greatest of these? Who can I go to? Who is renowned amongst you? Because he saw, uh, you know, like there were many scholars around, but who can I go to? He said to him, go to Ata. There's no one like Ata. And it's said that in Hajj, the Umayyad Khalifa used to say, no one gives fatwa in Hajj except Ata. Right? Like now when you go for Hajj, everyone's got their own mufti, right? and everyone's got their own sheikh, and everyone's giving fatwa. In those days, it used to be said, in Hajj, no one gives fatwa except Ata. Ata is everyone's reference point. Rahimahullah because of the knowledge and his status that he had. The Khalifa heard about Ata, so he comes to see him. And he sees this man, and he's praying. In the Haram, he's praying. And he has a set number of rak'ahs that he would pray during that time that the Khalifa happened to come upon him. So he's praying, and his prayers are relatively long. And when he finishes, he's about to get up again, and his son or someone next to him says, the Khalifa is waiting for you. But he carries on. He has a certain number of rak'ahs that he wants to finish, right? And it's not out of disrespect for the Khalifa or trying to ignore it. This is his routine, and he's not going to change his routine for anyone. This is how he worships Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He prays and he prays and then until he finishes, and then he goes and he meets the Khalifa. The Khalifa, when he leaves from Ata, he says to his sons, Oh my sons, seek knowledge. For I have never seen anyone honored in a way that Ata was honored and anyone humbled today like your father was humbled. Right? He is honored and we have been humbled. Why? It's not because, and he's the Khalifa obviously, and Ata is just, you know, like a regular person. It's not, doesn't have any position in the government or anything. But that's because of the knowledge and the status that he got. The Khalifa would come and he would sit and he would wait for someone like Ata to finish no matter how long he took because of that knowledge, right? And that's why some of the scholars said that everything that a person has, usually, you know, from your like profession and from your skills and from your, you know, your tribe, and it normally comes back to your parents, right? You, if you see someone, you know, you want to ask 
someone comes to you and asks for your kid's hand in marriage, your daughter's hand in marriage, one of the first things you ask about, who are your parents, right? What family are you from, right? If someone like comes and, you know, they, 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 they're claiming something, you, you normally want to know about their background and where they come from and, and who their parents were and whatever, except with knowledge. The vast majority of the people of knowledge, we don't know anything about their parents. Their parents were general Muslims, didn't have anything, you know, they, they weren't people of knowledge themselves. They weren't people who were well known necessarily for being, having a, a great amount of knowledge or anything. They were average Muslims. But those scholars, you know, knowledge scholars are the only ones that the Khulafa, they inherit from their, their, their parents, right? The Khalifa passes away, his brother becomes the Khalifa, his son becomes the Khalifa, his nephew becomes the Khalifa. A great wealthy businessman, where did you get your wealth from? Especially in the olden days. Oh, my father left it as inheritance, right? Our family has a business. This is your name, right? You have a name that's known in your tribe, in your community and whatever. It's your father's name, it's your grandfather's name, it's your great-grandfather that had that name. Except with knowledge. You can have nobody before you as a scholar and still you can have that great state. And that's what Ata is. Ata doesn't have anyone before him. His father's not well known. Himself is a free slave. He's but because of that status, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him a great position, right? Just as in our time, Sheikh bin Baz, rahimahullah ta'ala. Sheikh bin Baz was someone who doesn't come from a well-known family in Saudi Arabia, doesn't have a position in terms of his family, in terms of, you know, a lot of the, the Saudis and in, the, in the Gulf countries, they come from tribes, and those tribes are well-known, and they have positions amongst them, and they're known who they are. So Sheikh bin Baz doesn't come from any famous tribe. Isn't one of those people that comes from any of that stuff. And he's blind, and he's generally like, you know, he looks like a weak man. He's not like someone who's built or strong. Or, and, but what is he known for? He's known for his knowledge. And because of that knowledge, he would have kings and princes and other people coming to him in his house, sitting with him and eating with him. And they would come and they would do that because to honor him because of his knowledge. Right? And because of his status that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him through that knowledge. So the point is, and I actually don't know how we got from Tafsir or Surafil to Sheikh Bin Baz. Anyway, but the point is that it's, oh, Ibn Abza. <laughs> We're speaking about Ibn Abza. Right? Ibn Abza, rahimahullah, is this, is this scholar then who is, um, who is well known. And anyway, uh, he says concerning Sijil, he said, Min Sijilim min He said that this is from the Sijil of the heavens, and it is the same stones that were used upon the people of Lut. The same stones from the people that were used upon the people of Lut. And he said, others said that it is from the stones of Hawfire. It is from the stones of Hawfire. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Ikrima rahimahullah ta'ala said that the birds would come and they would throw and pelt these stones upon them. And he said, and it is from then that the first cases of leprosy and these types of diseases became known amongst the people of Arabia. And that's because, as we mentioned, in, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, mentions in that narration that not everyone died straight away. Right? He says that some of them perished immediately and others from amongst them lived. Right? And they survived a number of hours or days or weeks and they would find you know, parts of their bodies falling off and they're slowly deteriorating and slowly, slowly uh, diminishing. And so some of them said it is like a type of leprosy that came upon them. That, that continued and continued until eventually they died. And in that narration, it said that Abraham was from amongst those people who only died as he was all the way back towards Yemen and entering into the land of Yemen. And that's when he finally succumbed and he died. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. So did, did the narration say the leprosy started? As in, as in this is what Ikrimah says. So did they 
No, no, not leprosy as in from the whole world. This is when it first became known in Mecca. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's like there was no leprosy before this time. It means that this is when this first case was known amongst the people of Mecca. And Allah knows best. Is it the case that the smaller the number of occurrences of a word in the Quran, the greater the number of opinions regarding it? Uh, I don't know exactly what you mean by that. If the word is not used often, would there be more opinions in regards to what that word actually means? Not necessarily. I don't think that's necessarily the case. That if the, uh, I don't know if she's referring to a word that's only mentioned or a, a concept. Allah Maria, I don't think necessarily that's the case. Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily the case that if a word in the Quran is only used once or twice or very few times and the opinions amongst the scholars have still increased. No. And and like you know, that's not always the case. Sometimes it's it's the opposite. And Allah knows best. Any questions? I think we'll stop there, inshallah. Any questions from anyone? Okay, if there's no question, inshallah, then tomorrow, okay, tomorrow the time is changing because the clocks go back, inshallah. We're going to winter timing next week, right? So next Tuesday, inshallah, Isha in the masjid will be 7 p.m. and we start the class at 7.30, inshallah. And then obviously that continues on now for the rest of the winter months. That's right, right? Okay, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.